0: Well, it's been a while since we've been back in the Gospel of John, but where we left off a few weeks ago, we were in the middle of chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 9. There's a pew Bible in front of you if you don't have uh, your own Bible, and if you don't have one at home, take that home with you. That's our gift to you. But as we always like to say, we want to make sure that we understand the context of where we are in the passage this morning. And so we're in John chapter 9, we're in the middle here, and the setting is that we're at the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only has Jesus been celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, but we're at the end of the Feast. You'll remember at the end of the feast when they light the four large uh, torches or flames and the, the, the flames light up the entire temple. Not only that, the, fl- the flames actually light up much of the city of Jerusalem and there's a celebration that's going on. And while the celebration's going on, right before the priest extinguished those flames, Jesus cries out in a loud voice that, "'I am the light of the world.'" Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now understand, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they knew exactly what Jesus was making by that statement. By calling himself the light, he's telling them that that I am the light, meaning that you are darkness. That you, even though you're the religious leaders, that you have been walking in this spiritual darkness. See, I'm not really sure where we we get this passive view of Jesus, as if he didn't want to offend anyone. He was all about peace. He's all about just not—that's not the Jesus that we read about right here. Not only does Jesus tell them that I am light, that you are walking in darkness, he goes even further. He then goes to tell them in chapter 8 that I am from above, meaning that you are from below. Below. But it doesn't stop there. He continues to go on. He says, listen, you you call yourselves the children of Abraham, and you think that because you're the children of Abraham, that's all that it takes, that you're eventually going to, to be granted into God's good graces, and you are going to have salvation. But I'm here to tell you that's not enough. Jesus continues, if that's not enough in chapter 8, then he goes on to say that, listen, you're not even serving God, you religious leaders. You've spent your entire life studying the scripture, studying the Old Testament, trying to keep the law. But in fact, you're not even serving God, but you are serving who? The devil himself. And then he makes this statement at the end of chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, say those last two words with me, I am. And when he says, I am, they know they go back to the burning bush where God refers to himself. Remember when he's talking to Moses, he says, I am. So now Jesus, they know that he is saying that he is God. And at that, they had had too much. And so now they attempt to stone him, and they they force him, and he ends up fleeing from uh, where the 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 temple there. But by God's divine plan, because God is a sovereign plan, nothing happens by accident. We see that Jesus happens to run into happens or air quotes okay to run into this this man who had been blind since he was born. Jesus ends up spitting into the mud. He puts it in the dirt, makes some mud, puts the mud on the man's eyes, tells the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back. And this man who's been blind his entire life, he comes back seeing. A miracle has taken place. Well, those that, that knew this man, since we don't know exactly how old he was, is another one that he was 40, around 40 years old, but he had been blind since birth. You have to believe that there's some neighbors, there's some people that knew him, and they're baffled. How did this happen? How did this man that we knew, he's always been blind, but now we can see what, what's gone on here. So they take this formerly blind man, they take him to the Pharisees, who are the religious leaders, and they say, hey, can you give us some perspective? Can you tell us how did this happen? So the Pharisees, they decide to investigate this miracle. But understand this, friends. The purpose of their, their investigation is incredibly clear. They are not sincerely looking for answers. But instead, they're doing everything they can to do two things. Number one, they want to suppress this story. We can't let this message, we can't let this story of this man who was born blind, who was healed by Jesus, we can't let that get out because why? It doesn't fit our narrative. And it doesn't fit what we've always believed. And secondly, they're doing all that they can to condemn Jesus. So they initiate three interrogations. And that's where we pick up in our text this morning. The first interrogation begins in verse 13 and goes through verse 17. So the Pharisees have gathered this first um, interrogation. Here it is. It says in verse 13, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. Why? For he does not keep the Sabbath. We've heard that one before, haven't we? But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is what? A prophet. Now, Chances are that they didn't bring this man before the Pharisees on the day that he was healed because the day he was healed was the Sabbath. And remember, Jesus had already gotten in trouble by them by performing a miracle which was considered to them work on the Sabbath. So chances are it's probably the next day that they bring this man before the Pharisees and they they ask him two questions. The first question that they ask him is, how did you receive your sight. And the second question is, what do you say about the person who opened your eyes? He says, "Look, it was a man named Jesus. He came and he put mud and he, on my eyes and he healed me and he's the one who made me uh, made me see again. And by the way, who do I think he is? He is a prophet." In verse 17, he says. Well, the Pharisees, they can't contend with the fact that Jesus would be a prophet because he did a miracle on the Sabbath, and to them that was considered a sin. Friends, they are so blinded by their self-righteous system that they completely miss the Messiah in their midst. By the way, Jesus didn't break the Sabbath according to Scripture. He broke the rules that rabbis had added to additional regulations and rules to the Sabbath after what was said in Scripture. But it doesn't stop there. Then there's a second interrogation. Look at verses 18 through 23 for the second interrogation that they hold. It says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. One of my favorite things of being the dad of young kids is not knowing what's going to come out of the mouth of your kids. You know what I'm talking about? They can be so naive, they can be incredibly honest sometimes. You don't want them to be honest. Uh, Lindsay and I were at lunch the other day and, and we, we were talking about several things that our kids have said, and one time we kind of rotate. We have a, a bedtime routine where we'll we'll re, we'll do bath and we'll brush teeth and then we'll um, one one will read a story. Then we'll read the Bible. We'll pray and then we'll separate and kind of lay down with our kids. One day Noah was telling a story to Lindsay, and he, it wasn't making a lot of sense. And he told Lindsay, he said, "Well, never mind." And and Lindsay said, "What well, do you mean never mind?" He said, "Well, I mean, you know, what never mind means don't you?" And He said, "No." He said, "Never mind is the things that boys say to moms and they just don't want to repeat it again." <laughs> The other night, I was laying down in bed with with Anna Reese, and she looked up at me and she said, Daddy, I want you to keep reading the story to me, but will you go brush your teeth first? (laughs) (laughs) Out of the mouth of babes, right? The honesty that, that can come from them. Well, it was at this point in the interrogation that they're, now they, they, they've moved past talking to the man, now they've got the parents, and they basically say, look, he's of age, you need to go talk to him, we're not going to give you all the answers here. The Pharisees, they're now, according to the first part of what we just read, they're trying to discredit this miracle. How are they trying to do it? By, by trying to get the parents to say, he wasn't really born blind, he wasn't blind in the first place. But instead, think about this. Instead of the parents being overjoyed that their, the flesh and blood, that their son has been healed, this miracle has taken place, this ailment that he struggled with his entire life, it's been healed by Jesus instead of being overjoyed by the fact, they act out of what? Fear. They're afraid of what the Jewish people might actually do to them. And they answer, yes, he was born blind, yes, yes. He was healed, but he's an adult. He's old enough to give an answer, so I'm not going to take the fall for him. Why don't you go and ask him? The problem was, they had already asked him, hadn't they? They had already received an answer from this formerly blind man. They simply didn't like the answer that he gave. And now the parents were afraid that if they admitted that it was Jesus who healed their son, that they would be put out of the synagogue. So what do they do? They pass on complete responsibility to their son. Think about that. Think about how shocking their response is. But before we're too quick to pass judgment on to the parents here, church, how often do we act out of fear of the reaction that other people might give us if we answer and we stand up for Jesus? Think about how sometimes it's just easier to remain quiet instead of speaking truth. How many times are we, instead of standing up for what we know is right in God's Word, do we just decide, I'm not going to speak up, I'm not going to stand up for what's right, I'm going to pretend that I didn't hear that, I'm going to pretend that I didn't see what was going on there, because it's really just not worth the trouble. It's really just not worth the hassle of standing up for truth. Finally, there's the third Interrogation in the last verses, verses 24 through 34. It's a long passage, but let's read it. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind. So now they're calling him back and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, referring to Jesus, is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you sense the frustration in his voice? Do you, and here's some sarcasm, do you also want to become his disciples? Kind of throwing some mud right there, right? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we kind of, here's puffing up your chest here, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, meaning Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, puffs up his chest a little bit more, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So the religious leaders, they're stuck here now. There's no way that they can uh, continue to deny that a miracle has taken place. Too many people knew him before, and too many people know him now. But not only are they stuck in that they can't deny the miracle, there is no way that they are going to admit that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. So what do they do? They go back to this man. They go back and they, they talk to him. They try to get him to give glory to God. You say, well, that's a good thing, right? No, that's not a good thing. They're trying to get him to say, hey, give God credit for this, and if you do, then you're denying that Jesus is a prophet. You're denying that, that he has anything to do with God. So they're trying to kind of twist his words around. But instead... I love how this man who's just, the, 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 and just recently been given sight by Jesus, instead of shrinking away and being afraid of, of these educated religious men, he almost becomes more and more bold. And in verse 25, this is my paraphrase, he says, look, all I know is that I was blind and now I see. How many times have we sung that great hymn of faith? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? Saved a wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was what? Blind, but now I see. If I was Jack Loveless, I would bust in a song right now, but I'm not, so you're not gonna get that, Jack, sorry. save that one for you. So he logically reasoned that Jesus must be from God, right? I love this. Unconsciously. He didn't study. He didn't all of a sudden go to some theology class and put all this together. This uneducated man, this formerly blind man, he actually produces a sound scriptural argument to which the religious leaders had no answer. Look, he says, if he's not from God, how'd he heal me? You tell me, how did that happen? And when the Pharisees couldn't answer this man's argument. They settle by doing what? By verbally abusing him. Oh, you were born into sin. That's why you've been blind your whole life and you think you can teach us? And finally, when they have no other words for their argument, no other way they can explain this miracle, what do they do with this man? They kick him out of the synagogue. Look, Jesus' amazing miracle of taking a man who was blind and giving him sight it wasn't enough to soften the hearts of these religious leaders in verses 30 13 through 34 the verses that we just read what we have just seen is the character and the heart of these religious leaders and what did it result in it resulted in, as far as we know from scripture this formerly blind man is the first person who is kicked out, excommunicated from the church for standing up for his faith and trust in Jesus. What do we learn from this man? What we know is that declaring the work and the truth of Jesus, friends, it always carries a cost. Sometimes we can get in our bubble here in America and we can forget about our brothers and sisters all around the world that are being persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. It's estimated that over the last decade that more than one million Christians were killed for standing up for the name of Jesus. A million Christians Killed for saying, Yes, I believe in Jesus. Earlier this year, Newsweek released an article in which they said it's believed that this past year, this was going back to 2018, that there was more genocide and persecution amongst Christians around the world than at any point in human history. Listen, we don't know that type of persecution yet in America. But while we don't know that sense of persecution and really wondering whether or not our lives are going to be taken if we stand up for the gospel, sometimes we do see that if we stand up for God's word, if we continue to say that God's word is as relevant and as true in 2019 as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, that we run the risk of being called old school backwards thinkers, outdated and narrow-minded, don't we? Whether it's standing up for the life of the unborn, whether it's saying that we still believe that God's design for marriage is between one man and one woman, whether it's calling yourselves a born-again Christian, sometimes standing up for these things runs the risk of being saying, well, you're so outdated. You're so not relevant today. You so need to get with where we are in culture, and you're considered to be radical, outdated, or bigoted today. But church, listen to me. We cannot have it both ways. We are either going to show by our words and by our actions that we fear God or we fear man more. But we can't have it both ways. We can't say that we want to live for the applause of those that are on social media. We want to live for the applause that people say, oh, I'm so glad that you're bending on this and that you're making sure that you're still relevant today, and then say, but we're going to fear God. We must choose who is more important to us, the applause of man or the applause of God, because the two are becoming more and more polar opposite as we continue on in our culture, even here in America let see what happens outside the synagogue. Verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I love this. The religious leaders just kick him out of the most religious congregation, and he happens to stumble upon, again, happens to, the light of the world, and he's now face-to-face with Jesus. Jesus tells us, man, look, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. And how does he respond? He says, I believe. Lord, I believe. And then his immediate response, his immediate reaction is to do what? He worships. Church family, it is as always when we worship Jesus, just as that man did, what we are doing is we are acknowledging that Jesus is God, and we place our trust and our dependence, that next word so important, completely on him. More on that in just a minute. Let's see how this chapter ends. Verses 39 through 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, those who may see, excuse me, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now, what does Jesus mean here in verse 39 when he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. I think what Jesus is telling us is that he came into this world for those who think that they have spiritual sight. Think about the Pharisees at this point. They would be shown that actually they are blind Not only that, but he says that those who do not have spiritual insight, he came so that they might have the opportunity to see. But the whole argument here, it all goes around one word, and the one word that I want us to focus on is the word need. You see, church, those who know they are blind, they are the ones to whom Jesus can give sight. The ones who receive sight—again, I'm talking about salvation here. They are the ones that first understand that they were born, and they continue to walk in spiritual and complete and utter darkness. The Pharisees thought they had their act together, didn't they? They thought that God was lucky to have them on His team. I'm doing all that I can right. And they were. They were. If you were to stack up their their acts and their deeds and their knowledge against the other people, others would pale in comparison to them. But they were thinking that their efforts to keep their law, the efforts to memorize the law, even though that should have caused them to understand how many times they failed the law, they thought that their efforts were enough to earn them into God's good graces. They thought... That salvation was based upon their efforts, and in their opinion, their efforts were what? Enough. And in 2019, how many of us know someone who still think that today? If you were to ask them, do you have confidence that you'll stand face to face before God when you die? well, I think so. And you say, well, why? A majority, I believe, of Americans. Well I, well, I think I've done enough good things. I think that I'm a good person. Even today, we're no different than the Pharisees if we think that our efforts, that our deeds, and the things that we do for the poor, the things that we do for others, that our efforts are going to some way earn us into God's good graces. Contrast the religious leaders and their reliance upon their efforts and their deeds with this formerly blind man. Think about it. This blind man, he knew his need. He knew that his entire life, he had not only been walking in physical darkness, but he knew that he had been walking in spiritual darkness. And church, only when someone realizes they are blind will they genuinely long for sight. It's only when a person understands his or her spiritual blindness that then they will turn to Jesus for healing. See, the first step towards salvation is not repenting of your sin. It's actually the second step. The first step is understanding that you're completely separated from God. Understanding that we were born into sin, that we are helpless, that we cannot heal ourselves And only Jesus can heal us. Only Jesus can restore us and put us back together. And friends, if I'm being honest with you, this is where I am afraid that we have strayed so far as Americans. We have become so self-dependent that we no longer see our need for God. Yeah, we're okay with Jesus. We like Jesus. We'll come to church most Sundays as long as there's something more important not going on. He's in the top three, four things in our life. But desperate for him? No, not really. Know that we can't make it another day without him? I, I, I can make it without him. I just, I just need to kind of fill in the gaps with Jesus. And, and I'll, I'll go to him when I need something. I'll, I'll go to him at Christmas and Easter and some of those times. Are we desperate for Jesus? In the Old Testament, God made a promise to his people. He made a promise that he would send a Savior who would help them, those who were desperate for him. And that answer would come through the person of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, God's people are wandering around in darkness. Why? Because of their sin and their unbelief. And then Jesus the Messiah pops into the scene, and he calls himself the light Of the world. But unfortunately, as we have seen time and time again as we've studied through the book of John this year, those who thought they knew the most, those who had their act together, they completely missed the Messiah standing there in front of them because he didn't fit what they wanted or what they expected. Friends, listen to me. God does not want you to be self-sufficient. God doesn't want you walking around acting as if you've got your act all together, as if I have no problems that I can't handle myself. It's not that way anyway. Why would we pretend in front of other people? No, church, God wants us to need him. God wants us to recognize that we are completely dependent upon Him. God wants us to come in humble and contrite spirit and say, God, we are broken and we have nothing of value, but you can restore, you can heal, you can bring us back together, and we desperately need you. Charles Spurgeon, when he was speaking of this concept in one of his sermons, he he had this quote. He said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Friends, if we want to grow closer in our walk with Christ, it must begin by recognizing our dependency on him. It must begin by saying we cannot do this on our own we desperately need you and church family as we grow closer to the Lord as we continue to dig deeper in this walk with him we will not uh, in our wisdom and our maturity and our sanctification as we grow in our walk it's not as if we eventually wean ourselves off from him and now now like a student would from a tutor now I understand now I've got enough and now I don't need him as much the opposite is true The longer we're with Jesus, the more we serve Him, the deeper we dig into His Word, the hungrier we become for Him, the more dependent we realize that we are for Him. And as we grow closer and closer to Jesus in our everyday daily walk, our desire should become more and more that we'd flee from darkness and that we would find our true delight and our true desires in the Lord and His goodness. I'll close with this. I'm convinced that so many Christians today think that my focus on drawing closer to Christ, my focus on becoming a better Christian is on if I would just stop certain sins, So we spin our wheels, and if I would just stop this habit, if I would stop doing this, and then we we spend all this energy trying to stop because we focus on the things we shouldn't be doing. But church, I think there's a better way. I think the better way would just be if we would spend more time with God. Spend more time focusing on who he says he is in Scripture. Spend more time in Bible study. Spend more time in prayer. And then what will happen is that we will fall more in love with God. And what happens is when we do that, when we love God more, then we love the things of God more. And when we love the things of God more, the, 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 the allure of this world and the things of this world, it begins to loosen the stronghold of our lives. So why don't we spend the rest of our lives saying that we are not going to flee and, and try to do better in our own our sins so that we can feel better about ourselves? Why don't we spend the rest of our lives studying this Word? Why don't we spend the rest of our lives praying to the God of all hope, the God of all comfort? Why don't we spend the rest of our lives saying, my life is not worthy of my own, so I am going to bow down to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and as I do, the natural result will be the things of this world will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace we were all were blind at one point the question is had those scales fallen from your eyes Can you say, I once was blind, I once was helpless, I once was separated from God, but by the grace of God and by what God has done in my life, now I can see not because I'm worth it, not because I earned it, not because I deserve it, but because I humbly fell on my face and I admitted that I am separated from you and I need your forgiveness. I repent of my sins and I turn to you. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Savior of the world, that you were born of a virgin, that you lived a life that you died on the cross, not because you earned it or deserved it, because of my sin. You died upon the cross, but it doesn't end there. The Gospel says that He arose three days later, and that He extends the plan of salvation. He extends the offer of grace, of forgiveness, the removal of guilt upon your life, if you will choose to accept and turn from your wicked ways and say, Jesus, I desperately need you. And you will not find a Savior. He says, well, let me look back and see if I'm, no, you will find a savior who will come just as that father did to the prodigal son who will come running to you, not waiting for you to get to him with open arms and you will find your worth and your value in ways that you will never experience any other way except by accepting the love that has been given to you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we find acceptance, that we find a place at your table, a place into your family, not by anything that we do or don't do, but by placing our trust and what was done for us on our behalf through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times that we feel that that we have done something to make us worthy of your love, that we've done anything that would earn us acceptance into your sight. But Lord, thank you for the reminder that each and every one of us, we were born into sin, we were born blind, but your grace heals. Your love can take a heart of stone and turn into a heart of flesh. And Lord, for those of us who have accepted that gift of the gospel, I pray that we are reminded of it day in and day out, and that we live the rest of our lives in light of the fact that we once were blind, we once were dead in our sin, but now because of the power of the gospel, you have made us alive in Christ. Lord, nothing else even comes close to the importance of living out a life that honors you, that glorifies you because we recognize that apart from you, that we have nothing. And Lord, if there's someone here today that they're not desperate for you, That they've never recognized that their sin is what causes them to be separated from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would touch their hearts even right now. That they would recognize their need for forgiveness. That they would recognize their need for your grace and your mercy. And they would call out to you and ask you to forgive them of their sins. That they'd call out to you and say, I admit that you are God's son, Jesus. That you are the savior of the world and that you are the only one who can make me righteous. That you are the only one who can give me a right standing before God the Father. Lord, I pray today just for one. Is there just one here today that you're drawing near if they would respond and they would trust you with their heart and their life. If they would give their life to you. Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, may our answer be yes. Would we respond out of the love that you graciously, lavishly poured out upon us?